we are the only organism out of 8.7 billion organisms, different species on Earth, who is actually making the Earth unlivable. Partly we've done that because we have identified so strongly as something, you know, whether it's a culture, a tribe, a race, uh, you name it. And that identification basically then becomes the basis for defense, which becomes offense, which becomes separation, which becomes war, which becomes so many different things, you know, and you see that so clearly around the world right now. Hello, uh, warm welcome back to Intersections. As you know, our focus here is on finding ways to dissolve boundaries, to expand our consciousness, to feel uh, a sense of uh, ever-growing attunement with, with truth. And um, today, it is such a delight for me to have um, on our podcast someone who's been essentially doing that, both as his life and his message, in a way that seeks to challenge us to think about ourselves, our life, and our purpose in perhaps, to me, in the most dissolving of boundaries ways, because he's seeking to invite us to connect with literally every atom in creation. And I'm talking here about Paul Hawken. He is a renowned environmentalist, uh, an entrepreneur, an author, a speaker, an activist. He's dedicated his life uh, to environmental sustainability, changing the relationship between business and, and the environment. He is one of the environmental movement's leading voices. He's been a pioneering architect of corporate reform with regard to ecological practices, and his work includes both founding successful ecologically conscious businesses, uh, but also then writing about the impact of commerce on living systems and consulting with heads of state and CEOs on economic development, industrial ecology, and environmental policy. He's the founder of Project Drawdown, a nonprofit dedicated to researching when and how global warming can be reversed. This organization maps and models the scaling of 100 substantive technological, social, ecological solutions to global warming. He has authored numerous articles and op-eds and peer-reviewed papers and has written eight books, including five national bestsellers. His most recent book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation, has been a New York Times and a Washington Post bestseller. He's appeared in leading media, including the Today Show, the Bill Maher Show, Larry King, and has been profiled or featured in hundreds of articles, including in Esquire, Washington Post, and Business Week. I mean, I could just go on and on, <laughs> but I think it's time for you all to have a taste yourself of, um, yeah, of just this great force in our midst. Paul, welcome. Vitendra, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. And by extension, I think it's a pleasure to be with all the people who are watching and listening to your podcast, which is extraordinary. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. I have to ask you this. As I've had the privilege, the pleasure of um, taking a walk, you know, through your life, your work, your contributions, your ideas. I mean, how do you get it all done? Within you is six or seven great achievers in one. <laughs> you know, you could just take one part of what you've done, the writing or the, you know, the activism or the the business successes that you have, you know, et cetera. It's just like so many things in one life. That's a really good question. I spend a 
uh, I was down at the University of California, Irvine yesterday speaking to a graduate class. They were comprised of engineers and, and chemists, actually. It was the chemistry department and the engineering department. And they, they had paired off for a whole year in their class to solve problems to deal with the underprivileged that are suffering or their greatest uh, impact from you know, climate change and po air pollution and other aspects of industrial society. And they asked the same question. And by the way, as I'm mentioning it, uh, they're graduate students. And actually, what I said was that whether it was a book or a business, to me, both of them were about something that I developed when I was very young, which is curiosity, which is I did them all to learn. I write to learn. I do not write because I know. And the other thing, I do not write to change your mind because I feel like that is not possible. Starting it, and number one, number two, uh, that's not my business to change your mind. It's your, it's just your business, and my business is to try to change my mind. And so I try to write and communicate in such a way to create the sort of the conditions for people and the opportunity for people to see differently or think differently or change their so-called mind. Uh, as opposed to being, I don't know how to say it, but I mean, sort of, you know, there, there's a tacit narrative in the climate literature, which is, I know you don't listen up. And that may be true, you know, some people are very, very well informed, you know, as scientists, as writers, and so forth, journalists. But I just feel, I do feel like on the larger narrative, you know, what we need to do is connect into each other and to listen and to explore our curiosity where we don't know where we feel. Uh, uncertain uh, or even threatened, and the, and and that's a listening curiosity process, and that happened to me when I was very young, Hitendra, because I actually grew up in a home where I didn't feel safe, uh, so I went outside, and I felt safe outside. I always felt safe in the living world, and but I also knew right away that I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> I was I didn't know the names or the sounds or what was crawling under the rock or. You know, was the red berry edible or anything like that? And so right away, it started, like I say, a sense of, well, what's that? How's that work? And when you go outside and, and you really have that open mind, whether you're a botanist or a biologist or not, it doesn't make any difference at all. I mean, the fact is you realize you take 10 lifetimes to understand what you see in here, you know, and that's, that's kind of wondrous and sort of extraordinary. And it's very different than what we're taught, you know, in school, you know, it's to master, know, complete, get an A, do it, you know, it. and outside, it's a completely different teacher. Yeah, well, that uh, sweet and humble uh, response to, to my, my question, again, I, I just find it uh, remarkable how much you accomplished. And what you are telling us is that I, I've done it not out of a desire to accomplish, if I hear you correct, not of a, out of a desire to have a certain kind of an impact on you or on others, but out of my own intrinsic draw towards wanting to learn, engage, even writing. You know, you're saying writing is a process of learning for you. That That's really powerful. It's not about changing your mind. It's about changing my mind. That That's powerful. Yeah, and, and that's why I enjoy it so much. If, if I was, I don't know, I can't say it. To me, it's my happiest place, my happy place writing. Now, it's difficult. You know that very well. I think everyone listening knows that very well. So... But somebody once said that thing you're going to be the best at is the thing that you're willing to suffer for. 
And for most people, writing is a kind of suffering. There's no question about it. It is very difficult because we're, we're judging ourselves, you know, as we write and read. And we never quite live up to, you know, the, the, our ideal and to other writers that we admire and look up to so much. But it is my happy place because I go into where I don't know. I don't know. And I go read, I look, and I find things and discover. And there's just giants out there in terms of women and men who just just see the world in such brilliant ways and are able to communicate that to us. And for me, I just feel like I'm a dream catcher, you know, and I'm, I'm catching these butterflies or whatever you want to call them, you know, of of inspiration, ideas, and knowledge, and science. Because science to me is, is bedrock. It's only there's two types of science, though, and there's Western deterministic science, extraordinary, amazing. And then there is observational science, which is the science of place developed over tens of thousands of years by indigenous people. And, and the difference between those two essentially is that in you know, Western science, if you can't repeat an experiment, it's not true. And in observational science, you know that in nature, nothing repeats itself ever, not even one oak leaf. So repeats <laughs> is the same as another oak leaf. So it's different ways of looking at the same world, and they're both valuable, no question about it. And so for me, writing the last book, Regeneration, uh, there's 7,262 citations, you know, undergird the book. But really, facts don't change our minds. They're interesting. They're fascinating. Things you can throw out. You go, oh, wow, I didn't know that. But actually, what changes our minds and our hearts are narratives and stories. And that's been true for thousands of years. I, in my you know, small little 15-year journey in teaching at the business school here at Columbia, one of the things I got very attuned to early is how you know, teaching needs to be not about informing, but about inspiring. And um, I see that in what you're saying, and the importance of narrative and storytelling and ultimately about appealing more than just to the intellect, right, if I hear you correct. Yes, absolutely. I mean, intellect is profound, but it's just uh, that we can get separated <laughs> by our intellect as if, you know, and it, as if our body is, in our, you know, is designed to hold up, you know, our cranium instead of seeing ourselves as an entity, as an organism, you know. The intellect and the way we teach very much individuates us, separates us. It makes us think we're an individual, and and that's just not true. I mean, the only place where there's individuals is comic books and westerns. You know, that's why <laughs> it's just an illusion, and we're inseparable from each other and from everything that uh, surrounds us. And we that so that the western education literally emphasizes our difference, our separation, our disconnectedness, you know. And what happens out of that is we tend to move to language that is we call othering language, you know, that nature is other, you know, and other genders, other sexualities, other races, other ethnicities, other religions, other, other, you name it, are definitely other. You know, that is, it's not me. And therefore, I can sit back and judge it, you know, and discriminate against it or believe that I'm better than that or better than that person or that, that what that person does is ignorant and I'm, I'm not ignorant. And all that sort of dissolution of community and dissolution of connectedness is really sort of hums with our education in the West. And we don't think about it. It's not what we want. It just happens. 
And so I think that what is being called for right now, climate, you know, crisis, as it's called, you know, this climate emergency, you know, this is actually to look at it as a teaching, as an offering. In other words, we're being taught. This is a lesson. This is a teacher, a mom. Okay, it's called errors. You know, call it what you want. But this is feedback from this beautifully complex, extraordinary system we call this planet. And if any system ignores feedback, it perishes. And if feedback here is not to the living world, it's from the living world to civilization, what we call civilization. So what's at risk here is not the climate. It's not weather. It's not. It's us. It's civilization. And therefore, it goes right back to who we are and our values, how we think and how we are disconnected and how we've disconnected ourselves from nature, from the living world, and how we've even disconnected it from itself. The way we farm, the way we treat land, treat the oceans, you know, treat you know animals, how we treat all the different aspects, you know, and expression of life on earth, you know, and we keep slicing and dicing them into bits and parts and pieces, you know, and thinking that we can take whatever we want and I mean, India was a subject of colonialism. Colonialism from the European powers was 500 years of, you know, once they got their ships going and figured that one out, you know, starting in the early, late 15th century, it was really about exploring the rest of the world as if it was, you could just take whatever you wanted. I mean, that was the European mindset, uh, whether it's the Dutch or the French, whether it's certainly the English, you know whether it was the Portuguese, whether it was the Spanish and so forth. It was just a, a, an expedition. It was all about extracting, taking, and take, it would take people, take culture, take resources, take anything it wanted and thought it had the right to do so. And we were living in basically the wake of that world and we're still doing it because all our industry, all our companies, all our products, the things that you and I buy with respect and, you know, are actually extracted just the way the European colonial powers were. And so we are still colonizing the world in the sense of, you know, seeing it as separate and then taking what we want. And every business does that, whether it knows it or not. And so regeneration is simply a way of putting another lens on, looking at the world differently and saying, could we imagine a world where we have commerce, which I think is a very sacred activity between people, by the way, which I, that's why I call it the ecology of business and say the ecology of capitalism. And can we have a commerce, which we used to have at one time in many indigenous cultures, where the action of fulfilling our needs actually creates more life instead of less? I mean, that's really kind of it. It's 180, it's a pivot. But we know we can do that, and we are doing it in certain areas. And we know people have done it for tens of thousands of years here. And human beings, uh, as a Diné uh, teacher, Lila June, said uh, recently, uh, from a Diné's point of view, human beings are a beautiful expression of the earth. You know, known as expression of the earth, not something that landed on earth. <laughs> or you know, one day decided that it was different than the earth, you know. And even our religious teachings really say the same thing, really parse the language and so forth. But we don't feel that, you know, we don't feel that we're a beautiful expression of it because we don't even have a sense of what the earth is, even though earth means dirt, soil. We call it earth, <laughs> you don't call it water. So there is this wonderful opportunity that is really sort of calling forward, calling to us, 
and from our sense of uh, threat, our sense, uh, which is valid given the science. I mean, I'm not in any way saying that's not true. And our fear and our urgency about what we must do to stop emitting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and bring them back home. But there's a really sweet lesson here, a sweet teaching, you know. And as I've said to people, you know, th this is not an apocalypse. It's a teaching. It's feedback. It's only an apocalypse if we don't go to school. And this whole world is our school. There's a PhD thesis, right, in just the last five minutes of all the ideas that you have offered up to us to unpack. There's such a richness to so many things and themes. And different light bulbs are going off in my head. So let me uh, respond to what you just said in a couple of ways. One is um, this notion of we being very individualistic in the Western culture. I remember this quote from Yogananda. You know, I, I was sharing with you a little bit offline how you know his spiritual teaching has, has been very formative for me. So he says, uh, he says, um, when the I shall die, then shall I know who am I? You know, and I, I see that a little bit in, in sort of what you were saying. Yeah, that. Uh, and then I really like this um, thesis you're offering us that um, when you take the environmental movement, it's not something that you're doing necessarily for future generations. It's not something you're doing for the planet. It's a symptom, like the crisis is a symptom of what we are doing to be very constrictive in our own understanding of our own self and our own life. So we have to do it for our own self. I think I'm hearing that from you. And um, there's a parallel I want to draw. You know, you brought up India being colonized and all that with Gandhi and how he made the case to get India decolonized, you know, get the British to leave India. And which is that he, he really didn't consider them evil. He didn't consider the British his enemy. He actually considered them his friend. And it was out of that sense of caring for them that he was saying, you shouldn't be asked to leave because of our interests, although that is true, that is certainly a key point in this case, but for your own interests, because you are getting morally bankrupt yeah. in this way of living. So I care for you, I love you. And you know, when he went to London, for example, 1931, to participate in the roundtable you know, conference at that time to debate the future of India, now that was still 16 years before India got its independence, he was invited to stay in the Ritz-Carlton and he refused and he said, no, look, I mean, I, my lot and commitment is to the advancement of you know, humanity, of the poor in particular. And there are as much like poverty in London as there is in India. And so he went and stayed with the East Londoners, you know, the poor people and just, uh, you know, being a guest in somebody's, you know, gracious home. I mean, you're bringing almost a Gandhian kind of idea to the environmental movement, which is beautiful. Yeah, I think that it's so interesting about Gandhi, Mahala Gandhi, because there is a connection between... America and Gandhi in India that is not so well understood, which is that uh, Henry David Thoreau wrote, you know, obviously a Walden Pond, but he was arrested once. And he was arrested because he wouldn't pay his poll tax and it was pretty expensive. In other words, to vote, you had to pay money to vote. And he thought that was wrong because it discriminated against the poor. And basically, in that time, African-American people who couldn't have fit, you know, 25 cents to vote, that was a lot of money. And so he refused, and then he was arrested and placed in jail, right? And uh, his sister came, you know, Sophie, who brought him some hot chocolate, and he stayed overnight. <laughs> he was let out. It wasn't so rigorous. But 
uh, he wrote an essay about that. And that essay became very, very famous, actually, and so forth. But after he died, I think it was 1842, I could be wrong about the date, excuse me, but four years later, a book was published with his essay, and it was renamed and was called Uncivil Disobedience. No one knows to this day where that name came from, because it's not in his journals, it's not in the essay, he never spoke those words. When Mahatma Gandhi was in Durban, in uh, South Africa, uh, you know, a new barrister, you know, skinny, young, the Black Act was passed, you know, in which required Indians and, you know, people of color and so forth to register, you know, under the Black Act. It, it was named after a person named Black. And then the Muslims and the Hindus got together to meet about that, there was both presences in South Africa. And uh, the only place that would allow them to meet and get together was actually a theater owned by a Jewish person who knew something about being discriminated against. And they voted to defy the Black Act, to defy it, to get arrested. And Gandhi went home and he journaled and he was afraid because he knew if he got arrested, he would be defrocked. He would lose his license. And he just gone, and his family was so proud. You know, my son's a barrister in South Africa. And that week, somebody at the Durban Times went there or handed him the essay on civil disobedience. And he read it. And what he read was that when there you know, when there is injustice, you know, basically, then the just man is in jail. In other words, and up until that point, being arrested was ignominy. It was shameful. It was, you know, if you got arrested, your career was over. Your your respect from a community was over. It was a big deal. And what Thoreau did was said, no, it's an honorable thing to do in, this, in case of injustice. And so uh, Gandhi got arrested. And when he was arrested, he held up the essay as he was going to jail. You know, and when the government is unjust, the just person goes to, you know. It was interesting because it, it's so connected to Satyagraha, you know, which was, you know, uh, an Indian tradition, uh, very silently, but very, you know, be, being present to injustice, you know, and witnessing it. And by sometimes just sitting in front of somebody's house, you know, and not say anything, but why are you sitting there? <laughs> There's a reason. And so it was such a beautiful melding of those two different extraordinary human beings, you know, Thoreau and Gandhi. Yeah, wow. Thank you for sharing that. I know a few things about this this man who's otherwise, you know, so infinite in nuance and uh, richness to his life journey, Gandhi. I know fewer things, but a few things about Henry Thoreau as well. I did not know that story. So that was so, yeah, just regaling for me right now to to hear that from you in, in, in that way. I, I was aware that he had had some influence on Gandhi, but not in that precise way and not in that precise, very you know pivotal moment, you know, the way the way you just shared. Wow, that is amazing. And then and then if you carry that like idea forward, then to a movement that you yourself have been a part of, Paul, which um, you know, perhaps some of our listeners may not know you for, uh, the civil rights movement here in the United States, you know, and you have uh, this moment where Howard Thurman, you know, as one of the early 
voices and philosophers and, and guides to people like Martin Luther King later. He goes to India and he, uh, you know, has discourse with Gandhi and he he learns and gains inspiration from the way Gandhi's been scaling this idea, right, uh, of non-violent civil disobedience and brings, you know, brings those ideals back to the United States and then Martin Luther King, of course, takes it to a whole different level. It's so beautiful to see these kinds of cross flows because in so many ways, isn't it the case? Like I sometimes feel like they really validate what you're saying because when you're saying like, look, you are not an individual. You are, you know, you're connected with everything, which is like Gandhi wasn't just an individual. You know, in him was some of Henry Thoreau's consciousness. In Martin Luther King was some of, therefore, Henry Thoreau's consciousness, Gandhi's consciousness, and who knows how many others. Right? Isn't it like that? We just have this very limiting view of thinking of people in terms of their perceived sensory biological separation in a bodily form, but actually the essence is so much richer. So much richer. I mean, when Martin Luther King was hired, brought in from Atlanta for the Montgomery bus boycott, which began, and he was brought in as the pastor of a church there and to lead the boycott. He hadn't been there about a few months. Uh, and he was at church when he heard that the front porch of his house had been dynamited and his wife and children were there. And nobody was hurt, but it was just, he was mad. He was a father. He was furious. He was outraged, you know, that that could have killed his, you know, Coretta and his son. And so... It's interesting because then as he began to be better known and properly so, you know, um, people began to visit him from other civil rights leaders, you know, Bayard Rustin and others who came down to Montgomery from New York and the Northeast to visit this amazing, outstanding, eloquent, you know, uh, Martin Luther King. And when they got into his living room, I think it was Bayard Rustin sat down on a couch or chair and something, you know, and he said, whoa, and he, he got in the cushion and it was a gun. And then and somebody else sat in, and there was another gun and there was a gun there. And it was in that moment when they asked him, he said, have you heard of Mahatma Gandhi? He had not heard of Gandhi at that point and, and the principles of nonviolence. And that just wasn't in Martin Luther King's DNA. Certainly biblically it is in a sense, but not when somebody kill your family. You know, anyone be defend himself. And it was a another, I think it was a Methodist preacher or something from Texas, I forget his name, but he gave him Gandhi's autobiography. And he read it like that. And people said that within, a, he read it, that just on the spot is fairly significant, you know. And that next Sunday, everybody could tell something had shifted in his rhetoric and his understanding. And that became really the core of the Martin Luther King that I think the world got to know because uh, it was still formative at that time. And so Gandhi had a huge influence on that pivot away from you know the right to defend yourself, right? To, but the God, I mean, that seems... You know, of course you have a right, but but then what? You spend some time with Martin Luther King, and um, perhaps the story was playing out around that time. But um, it's incredible again, just that you have been part of that major movement, and then 
now at the environmental movement as well, and that you've been in close proximity at a very young age to, you know, somebody who's obviously a hugely inspirational force for any of us who are drawn to the quest of change making. So, can you can you give us like some some impressions, some memories of of uh, of King? Well, I was just a fly on the wall, so I didn't, you know, I was the press coordinator for the Mahatma Montgomery registering the press that came in, you know, once became a national, international story, then press came in from all over the world. And I, my job was simply to register. That was all. It was actually to keep track too because people were being killed, you know, and so there there was some practical reasons to do that. But so I just had the occasion of listening to him, watching him, you know, in a couple of meetings, but also in the Brown Church, you know, there in Selma, which became the center of the whole movement, March on Montgomery movement, you know, was there in the church. And so I got to listen to him, you know, preach, you know, come in and, I mean, extemporaneously, just completely, you know, capture that whole church and not, and also, I mean, others too, just Jackson and, and there's quite a few people came there and it was almost like a 24 hours, you know, I mean, every afternoon and evening and night, you know, there's a, preaching and singing, you know. And for me, what I remember most about it is probably something that you might not associate with, uh, you know, because think of a movement and the march and, you know, extraordinary heroism, bravery of the children, the teenagers who first started this thing, started by teenagers, not by anybody else, the March John Montgomery. And really impressed me was, was that here was a population, Selma, who, you know, had been treated so badly for so long, you know, since uh, slavery began, really, in the United States. And, but in that church, in the AME church, there was a sense of connectedness and community. I mean, the choir, you know, I mean, they could sing like nobody's business. You know, these are the choirs that created Whitney Houston and Aretha Franklin and so many amazing black men and women singers, you know, in our culture. And earlier, you know, one of the deacons had been killed by the Alabama state troopers just up the street in a cafe for no reason, unarmed. And his mom was there in grief. And so there was joy and grief and weeping and singing. And, you know, and I was like this white kid from Berkeley, California, looking at this and going, I have never experienced community before. That's what I learned. It's like, Wow. And it, it was so beautiful. And it carried forth in my life in ways that were a little odd, which in the sense I realized later to this day that all life is community. All life is organized in community. From the single cell, which is the only place life does exist, it's in a cell. There's no other life outside of a cell. And but the the cell has a trillion molecules, and it is a very very complex community. And then cells get together and form communities of cells, and we call them organisms. And so for me, that to see human beings organized in this beautiful way was so it's just indelible. It made such an indelible impression upon me. And I think about the climate movement and the, the different environmental movements and ecological movements, social justice movements, and so forth. But most of them on the, on the ecological environmental way really don't know how to organize as community. They organize how to, they know how to protest, they know how to march, they know how to 
try to change policy. They do amazing, amazing. But not in the sense of a community that can, you know, share grief and joy, that can sing and move and preach and really feel like uh, they're one body in a way that is just spectacular. I think it happens in India in other ways, in Hindu ways, in, in chanting and celebration, you know. But in the United States, I never experienced that before. Well, um, something is being sparked in what you said. You know, I've grown up in India. One of the contrasts I find between our two worlds, the U.S. and India, is that um, there is this uh, kind of quality of devotion that is to be nurtured in India. You know, my father, for instance, um, Paul was, uh, you know, a police officer. You know, at some point he ascended to being the head of the state police, you know, in India for a state. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, had a lot of formal command and control, power and authority, etc. But for a good purpose, you know, he was seeking to, you know, enforce law and security and all of that, you know, good things. But, you know, in that role, as you can imagine. And then I've seen him in these very devotional moments, you know, where there was, you know, a swami, you know, a monk. And when he would come... My dad would bow, you know, to touch his feet. He would become like a little child, you know, a little child, you know, in front of him. Because through that monk, he was seeing divinity, you know, he was seeing his guru, you know, and the monk was a representative of that. Or similarly, when he would go to a temple, something, or, you know, other such moments. And that's such a, just a commonly experienced, you know, ethos in a place like India. You know, you have in Indian Bollywood films, a hero kneeling on the ground and just uh, crying in the lap of his mother, you know, just being a little child again. You know, so there's this, like, this quality of devotion, which um, I find sometimes, you know, for us here in the West, there's almost a sense of almost like protectiveness and a sense of like, I, if I'm too vulnerable that way, if I'm too soft that way, you know, then I, then I perhaps, yeah, lose my strength or something like that. And that's not me. And it's a loss. It's a loss. And to your point about chanting, I mean, Yes, I the same thing. I mean, I find the Indian bhajans, you know, the chants to be like one of those catalyzing moments where the quality of devotion just like flows in the room. A hunger, you know, for the, you know, for the individual to dissolve into the universal, you know, something. Yeah. Well, that's what community, I think, is really. It's like the subordination and the, of separation and sense of self like, in the individuated way. And it's transcendent. Uh, I think actually everybody wants it. I don't think it's like some people want, some people don't. I think we all do. We all hunger for that. We long for it. And I think, you know, in many ways in culture today, we look for it, but we find it at all the wrong places. If I mean, it, it doesn't have depth and breadth and it's not sacred. But you know, whether it's Coachella or big rock concerts and things like that, I mean... Okay, so we've portrayed these two contrasting worlds, you know, the one that is more engaged with the intellect, the analytical, the kind of dichotomizing and, you know, and breaking things into parts and, you know, all of that. And and that's the best in analytical mind. And then, and then you've got this other, you know, kind of way of being, you know, which is much more expansive and inclusive and integrative and all of that. I want to offer you a question that I've been wrestling with, which is that, um, you know, what is the answer, right, to uh, where we are today, where we find ourselves today, you know, particularly, let's say, here in the West? And is the answer really, a, in a sense, like a pendulum shift, you know, more towards to the kind of form of being and thinking and perhaps all the way from parenting to educating and all of that, you know, coming from that much more integrative, you know, grounded, you know, naturalistic form? 
And and uh, you know, if you were to ask me as somebody who migrated to America from India at the age of twenty one, you know, my heart like full of all kinds of dreams and aspirations for what I saw as the material splendor, and not just that, but the analytical, the higher educational, the institutional, the organizational, and all of that nation building. You know, you know, kind of possibilities that I saw in the West. And, you know, again, I, India never walked out of me, even though I, you know, walked out of India at that moment in time. So I have a lot of dearness and fondness for so many of these qualities we are talking about, which I see more commonly expressed in Indian, you know, uh, in living. But um, but I do see something really powerful and beautiful and important, right, in this analytical advancement of the outer kind of aspects of science, you know, in, in the West. And so when I think about, like, perhaps a civilization of the future... I'm trying to think about how one can bring these together rather than have to choose one from the other. One where the individualistic as well as the collectivistic both can, can be fused. Take your example when you talk about the cell that kind of collaborates with other cells and you get organs and or, you know, organisms and all of that. At the end of the day, the kidney is still the kidney. The kidney doesn't become like a lung, you know, or you know, a lung doesn't become a heart. You don't surrender your individual identity you know, in service of just some cloned community kind of practices. And sometimes in some community-oriented cultures, sometimes I see a little bit of that happening. People suppress a little bit their own individuality just to be in service of a certain kind of family business or a certain community something or the other. And you obviously, my guess is that you don't want this pendulum to swing all the way there. There is something to be celebrated in each of us is unique spark. And anyway, so what are your thoughts on that? Like, how, how do we create a more balanced civilization where the individual and collective both can be, I guess, you know, I don't know, fused. You use the word balance, and I, I think that one of the things that we should really, I think, acknowledge is how extraordinarily imbalanced all of civilization is right now. I mean, it's, and we're so good and clever at creating comfort, creating extraordinary technologies in terms of communication, access, you know, travel, uh, knowledge, that that tends to be focused on, you know, the achievements of that or the richness, and literally the richness of it, the riches, so forth. And that's kind of where we get focused on different forms of our media and who we idolize, who we look up to, who we think is, you know, merits our attention, all that sort of stuff. So I think when we talk about balance, you know, we should really step back a little bit and look at, you know, who are we and where are we now? And I would say that, first of all, you know, just factually, half of the earth has been destroyed in the last 200 years. It's gone. I mean, the biomass, the creatures, the life, gone. We've done that. Most of it in the last 50, by the way, it's almost like a, it's an exponential. And that's still happening right now. And so the people are just blind to it, you know. But, I mean, whether it's our oceans, whether it's our grasslands, whether it's our forests, whether it's pollinators, whether it's, you know, wild mammals, not the ones we put in capos, you name it. And we don't have but half of it or less now than we did 200 years ago. So we are the only organism out of 8.7 billion organisms, different species on Earth, who is actually making the Earth unlivable. We're the only one. And partly we've done that because we have identified so strongly as something 
you know, whether it's a culture, tribe, or race, uh, you name it, you know. And that identification uh, basically then becomes the basis for defense, you know, which becomes offense, which becomes separation, which becomes war, which becomes, you know, so many different things, you know, and you see that so clearly around the world right now. What's happening now is that our actions, the way we think, the way we produce our services and, and our goods and the things that almost universally are wanted by people on earth today is destroying our home. We're eating our home. We're just, we're like, we're, we're eating it up. Okay. And one of the manifestations of that is global warming. Okay. And, and people can say, well, I don't care if the globe gets warmer. That's true. And neither does the globe, by the way. But changes is that combination, that dynamic between warm air and warm water creates a real change in the jet streams, right? Which bring cold and heat and, you know, to, and they're in the south and they're in the north, both, you know, and they're just these waves of a river, really, uh, of wind, you know, and they carry water, clouds, or cold and heat. And what we're experiencing is that there is kind of whiplash because of the dynamic between more heat and you know so forth so it's changing the vibration of the earth in that sense the, the jet streams you know causing drought and wildfire and floods and heat and overheating and cold uh it all is perfectly described by meteorology and physics you know we know exactly what's going on and it's coming from our behavior and so i want to go back which is like basically the earth is saying I mean, not in English, but it's saying, do you want to live here or do you want to destroy here? The climate is perfect, you know? It can't be anything but perfect at all times. It doesn't care what we think. Our science is perfect. The problem is we're used to climatic stability at a level that has created, you know, Holocene created everything that we want and many things we don't want, but of course, many things we want on a material sense. And that's changing, and we've done it. So our focus is going to come back. It's going to come back to who we are, those innate values, and how we are disconnected from, you know, core values of being a human being. And I'm not saying people don't have them; they do. Of course, almost everybody does, excepting that the busyness, the pressures, the stress, the demands of our lives around the world have kind of pushed them aside. You know, they're. They're suppressed, and so when somebody like your father bows and touches his forehead to the sheet of a monk, what he's doing, or she's doing, or somebody else, and so what we are doing in that sense is remembering. We're recalling something, and so we know we have a job as a teacher, or a police person, or a venture capitalist, a teacher, or whatever, okay? But we're reminding ourselves, you know, Muslims do it five times a day. That's to remind them of something, you know, whether it doesn't matter what the name is, all it doesn't, you know, what matters is that you're paying attention. And so the tumult, the threats, the disasters, you know, the cyclonic disturbances, you know, and the social disturbances and the social angsts and so forth are all messages. We're beginning messages, we're getting this communication. And what I feel is, what I sense is that we are inchoate, it's discordant. Uh, these are kind words for the 
social political systems that are arising in the earth today. But what's going to happen is that weather, weather is going to trump it all. And it's going to get, and it's locked in. It's going to get more extreme, more volatile, more unstable. And frankly, there's going to be more suffering, which I wouldn't wish upon anyone. But that's just, that is now locked in. It is locked in to what we've done over the last hundred years in terms of greenhouse gases and the way those are continuing to be emitted into the atmosphere. And so, as I said, this is feedback. And I feel like what's going to happen is that people are going to wake up and realize that their pursuit of their think their political beliefs or what they think is true and not true, their conspiracy theories or their, all their guns, you know, whatever, and I'm talking about America right now, that they are meaningless in the face of something that's far greater, you know, and that is this earth. And it's almost like there's shaking off. I mean, you know, just like a horse will shake off, you know, horse lights, shudder itself. Soul of the earth, and that's what's happening. So I feel like what we saw last year in 2022 is an extraordinary climatic event, you know, and superheating in London and Paris, and then a week later, flooding, both cities flooded, you know, like, again, that that whiplash of, you know, uh, jet streams, you know, and the Po River drying up in Italy and never dried up in, in any memory, in any history of any Italian going back for thousands of years. And so is the Yangtze River, you know? And so we had so many events and so forth. And what's happening is that climate, you know, the, the, the global warming has been a concept for most people. They read about it. They agree. They hear about it, you know? They may notice something and so forth, but it's a concept. It's simply a concept in people's minds. And they go about beating their life as if, you know, it was the same as always. And what happened in 2022 is it became experiential, either directly or vicarious. And that is what's going to happen on Earth over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, is that it's going to become experiential. And at a certain point, you wake up. You wake up and you realize that whatever illusion or delusions you have about self and other, about place and about security, actually are beggared by the force and the impact that is happening on Earth today. And to me, that's what brings people together. It brings people together. Yes, they can. We think that they're going to, you know, go get guns and hide away at Idaho. Maybe they will. Hopefully, stay there. Really, what happens in that situation, just like the Alabama Memorial Church in Selma, Alabama, when you're being attacked and people are being killed and forces arrayed against you, you come together. And so I feel like the earth is going to create community that is going to devote and dedicate itself to realization that the only reason we're here right now is to restore life. And if we're not here to do that, then why are we here? It doesn't take away from discovery and science and science right now is exploding in so many extraordinary ways but we're going to realize that if we're not restoring life on earth then we're kind of don't get the message because that is what that is what the earth is asking for and that's the only way we can bring back a sense of of meaningfulness to our civilization because right now with all due respect it is careening out of control. You know, you 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 were um, at some level 
offering a very critical look at the way we live our life today. And yet, you know, it's it feels almost like nectar, you know, coming from your lips. So there is something in the way you live your life, in the way you, you know, let yourself brew with these ideas and feelings that makes the receiver on the other end feel very loved, feel very cared for, and yet at the same time, shaken up and woken up, <laughs> right? With a message like, come on guys, let's wake up and let's let's seriously engage in reform, not just about who's in the White House or what policy is there and being debated in Congress about, but it's about how you and I live, you know, in our own lives. So I, I, I love that. I mean, it's a incredible, powerful, I think, example you set for us on how to take personal ownership, personal responsibility, you know, over the affairs of a day rather than otherize them to things that like others have to do. I, I want to read uh, from a couple of your sort of speeches and writings and use that to bring to focus uh, a key point, you know, that I find very special in your work. So, so you've said at various times, you've said things like, one description of the current economic system is that it's very extractive. Uh, I know you said that today to us as well. And there's this notion that um, we are constantly consuming and extracting without paying much attention to what we put back to create much more of a cyclical kind of balance, right? If I hear you correct. So there's that theme. Um, you, you talked about how climate change may leave people feeling as if they have to make a choice between saving the planet and their own, you know, their own comfort, their own happiness, their own well-being, their own prosperity. I do agree that sometimes it comes across as though there's that kind of like unhappy choice to be made. Um, and those were my own words. And then you say, not at all. You know, regeneration is not only about bringing the world back to life. It is about bringing each show us back to life, um, which I think is incredibly powerful. Uh, then you say, look, the needs of people and living systems are presented as conflicting priorities, biodiversity versus poverty or forest versus hunger, where in fact the destinies of human society and the natural world are inseparably intertwined, if not if not identical. And now I want to come to this piece that I, I really want to you know, shine a light on in, in your work. Uh, so, so you talk about how regeneration means placing life at the very center of every action and decision. Uh, and then you share about how you were asked to come up with guidelines, you know, or, or principles by a friend. And you said like in 15 minutes, uh, you came up with this and there are a few questions here. Uh, and, and, then, and then you said others can make their own guidelines. You know, these seem obvious to me and I think there might be common sense to anyone who wants to create a meaningful life, you know, on this planet. You know, I, I can read some of these out for our listeners, but I mean, you know, if you're, you know, comfortable doing that yourself, I realize, you know, you may not have the list in front of you, but... If you have it, you're welcome to read it. It's interesting. It was 15 minutes and, it, and then later I looked at it. I may have changed a couple words, but actually I was shocked or surprised I just held up. Yeah, yeah. I want to read them because I think there is a lesson. There are many lessons to be learned here. But uh, let, let's just kind of give our, our audience, a, you know, a little flavor, right? So, 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 so these these things that you came up literally just fifteen minutes are: Does the action create more life or reduce it? Does it heal the future or steal the future? Does it enhance human well-being or diminish it? Does it prevent disease or profit from it? Does it create livelihoods or eliminate them? Does it restore land or degrade it? Does it increase global warming or decrease it? 
Does it serve human needs or manufacture human wants? Does it reduce poverty or expand it? Does it promote fundamental human rights or deny them? Does it provide workers with dignity or demean them? And then finally, in short, is the activity extractive or regenerative? And the sense I get from it, when you come up with such carefully curated ideas, which seem to be almost a um, enduring, timeless uh, set of guidelines to inspire the right choice-making for us in the way we live, you know, the sense I get from it is that you are not just somebody who can stand on, you know, a podium or a stage and, you know, give a well-prepared, inspired speech and write uh, an incredible book, but you have been playing with your mind, curating your thoughts, critiquing them, refining them, sharpening them, and living every day with that sense of stewardship over your mind, because that's the only way you could have been prepared <laughs> to come up with something like this in 15 minutes, if just the natural flow of thoughts that go, you know, in any of us had already been refined and honed to a place where just you just naturally flow with this stuff, which is, which is pretty cool. You know, I spoke yesterday at a class, I mentioned that, I graduated. And what I said to them is, because I said, regeneration is a lens. It's a lens to look, you know, and at the world. And, and there's many other lenses, of course. And in this area, generally, there's a sustainability lens, you know, is something sustainable and all that sort of stuff. And then there's the climate lens, you know, climate change and tackling and fighting it and decarbonization and, you know, all that uh, language around that, you know, which I call carbon tunnel syndrome, you know, because it's so siloed, not to diminish its importance. It's crucial, of course, but it tends to be siloed. So, and and then there's the regenerative lens, you know, and and what you read and, and uh, is really the regenerative lens, and each of them is fine. Each of them, and I'm not saying one is better so much as I'm saying is that the regenerative lens has bigger arms. It, it, it includes everything. It doesn't try to, you know, sharp elbows and make room for it. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is what you should think, God forbid. It's really a, just a suggestion of how to look at the world and see the world. And we know that when whatever the cause is, it could be a teacher, it could be an experience, it could be even a book, you know, or something. But when that shifts, we have that, we've all had that shift in our life called growing up, where a childish way of understanding and seeing the world is discarded, put away, and replaced by a different way of understanding self and relationship to the world. And so the the the, the awakening, the religious awakening or the spiritual awakening, you know, is such a shift. And you really don't go back from it. You, you know, it, once you see that way, you can't unsee because it's in your heart, it's in your body, it's in your cells, it's in your, it's in the part of the body we don't have a description or a good in English anyway. We don't have good nouns for, you know, in terms of soul and spirit. But I think that that regeneration is the lens that allows us to see the future as being more instead of less. Because if you really look at the language around the environment, biodiversity, climate, and all the areas where there's so much good work going on, no, no question about it, 
I'm not being patronizing here uh, when I say that. Extraordinary work is being undertaken by people all over the world, every country. But if you uh, look at that and and then say, well, what what's the common denominator really of all that? The common denominator is that humanity is trying to regenerate and restore life on Earth. That's what we're trying. We can call it social justice. We can call it, you know, decarbonization. You know, we can call it, you know, basically set aside the 30-30, setting aside 30% of the Earth, you know, for by 2030, you know, for uh, wildness and so forth. We can call it rewilding. There's a whole bunch of things we can do, regenerative agriculture, you know, I mean, there's so many things that are aspects of that. But the lens itself then, and once you, I think once you start seeing it that way, it opens up possibility because, I, you know, I've at this school and uh, this is University of California, Irvine. I was at University of California, Santa Barbara, not so long ago. And just before I went on stage, I was speaking to 900 people and at a, and embarrassingly, but it's true. I, d- I don't know what I'm going to say before I go on stage. I don't have any notes or anything. And uh, it's an interesting moment of truth, you know. But I'm trying to speak to the audience, you know, and I can't speak to it unless I'm listening to it, feeling it, you know, as opposed to coming in with the preset set of. And when I walk onto the stage, I had been told earlier that 70% of the students were anxious, worried, depressed, had mental health issues, and 40% of them were considering not to have a family with children. They said, not going to bring children into this world. It's all limit. 70%. And what I said is, this is what I'm told about you. This is what you are feeling. And I said, I am not worried about you at all. I'm worried about the other 30%. You got it right. You absolutely have it right. And your challenge, as it is for all of us, is to take that stress. It's stressful. Come into Earth now and see where we are at and to metamorphize and to transmute that into action. Because what you've been told, and you have a great science school here, and you're re- being regaled with the probability of what's going to happen where and when and how because of human activity. Fair enough. But what you aren't being told is the possibilities because every problem that you are getting to understand is a solution in disguise. And so what regeneration does is open up the sense of possibility of what we can be, who we can be, you know, and I talk about dignity and and having meaning because the number one cause of depression in the world today is lack of relevance, lack of meaning, are irrelevant. And it's not not difficult to feel that in a world of, you know, eight point one billion people to feel like you just don't even matter, you know. And so Again, what regeneration offers in its specificity and its, in its different expressions is the agency. And thing that we forget when we look to these big, you know, whether it's a conference of the parties or the U.S. Congress or the EU or other, you know, big bodies, you know, of governance and so forth, and we see repeated failures, repeated corruption, repeated politicization, 
of what are really human, humane and human issues and so forth, we get sort of depressed. You know, we get like, oh my God, we're screwed. And what we have forgotten is agency. And the thing about Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King is before they were the, the Gandhi and the King that we knew and know of and revere, they were just one single person. And all change starts. All agency starts with one person. It doesn't mean one person can change the world. It doesn't mean every person is going to be a king or a Gandhi. Certainly not. That's so rare. But every change starts. And we know that because all disease starts with one cell in the human body. And it can't start anyplace else. And so the, the power of what is small, we think small, is extraordinary and agency arises when you have that clarity when you when you have that with gandhi i don't know what that point was you know i'm just, i don't think necessarily when he got you know the henry david Thoreau essay i know but there was that point where you know and i've read his you know autobiography and i'm sure you have too and you know, he describes it more as a panorama but same with king what was that point in his life, childhood, adolescence, as an adult, well, I don't know, but where something shifted. And really what the world's calling us to do is, is, is making available is that point in time for us, you know, uh, where we go, this is why I'm here. And so it puts everything into perspective. You know, do I want to make millions of dollars? No, I don't want to waste my life. I want to, you know, really enjoy my life and I can't enjoy my life unless my life is absolutely connected to all of them. You know, you inspired me to um, share a quote, uh, another quote from Yogananda that speaks a little bit to some of the ideas you're just offering. He says, the magnificent painting of creation stretches across in the infinite canvas of space and time. Every object and every event in nature is a masterful stroke of the great painter. But the ordinary person only sees confusing bits and pieces of these depictions. Consider everything that happens as a note in the symphony of the cosmic conductor. Individual notes seem meaningless unless heard in relation to the whole composition. In the creation's cosmic magnum opus, which has been playing throughout all time, everything, storm, death, love, life, has its part in the medley. And all unite in a universal rhythm of harmony. You can't beat that. It's so extraordinary. It's so beautiful. But but I, I see you being a living messenger of that, you know, it's um, because, see, you're talking here about the environment, you're talking about uh, Mother Earth, our planet, you're talking about practices like, uh, hey, let's not be extractive, let's be regenerative, let's seek to feel a sense of unity, you know, and I, I, I'm thinking, I mean, you're you're a philosopher of life, not, not merely an environmental activist, uh, because, uh, you know, after all, what you're saying is probably at the root cause of all of the issues we're facing, whether it's in the rise of chronic illness, you know, in society. You know, you talk about how the earth talks to us, you know, through the shifting climatic patterns, and it's trying to tell us, like, hey, do you really want you know, this to be a harmonious planet or not? Like, tell me. I mean, in the same way, the body at times speaks to us through disease, you know, I, I think, you know, right? The same at the level of societal, you know, tension points and all of that, like, uh, the same in terms of relationships, you know, how are we interacting with each other? How are we building intimate partnerships? How are we raising families? How are we interfacing with each other in schools and local communities? And 
organizations. I mean, any and all of that is ultimately informed and I think inspired in so many ways by the ideas you're offering to be less extractive, more look at things from a place of unity, expand a sense of consciousness, take joy in the collective, uh, all of that. I mean, it seems like it's really a philosophy of life. Each person's pattern, each person's template, each person's pattern is different. And I wouldn't even begin to imagine or presume I knew what it was for anyone else. And so the commonality of possibility is simply the realization that, that one's life in that of all other life is inseparable as opposed to distinct. And if you act that way, and I think the teachings of Yogananda and, and many spiritual teachers will say you'll suffer. It's it's suffering. It doesn't matter. And that's why you see people getting, you know, the bigger and bigger four hundred million dollar yachts and this and that. There's nothing that they can get that's ever going to satisfy. And so some people have resources to keep expanding you know, it on a material level and it just doesn't work. And so many other people then imitate that and try to do it in their own lives and so forth. And that's the extractive world we have. But extraction takes many, many forms. You know, the most extractive industry in America is Google. Well, they're taking every scrap and bit of information they can from you, no matter what you do on Google and then sell it so that somebody can entice you to consume more. You know, I mean, so when we look at extractive industries, you know, it's not just oil and gas. You know, it's the whole social media world. All of social media is extracted. Meta, Facebook, you know, obviously, same company, you know, Google, you know. I mean, I could go on. When you say extractive, I think people sometimes think, well, it's, you know, like, like a mine. Well, that's extractive for sure. But it's so permeates our lives you know, in our relationships, how we speak, even in our relationships, you know, there's a part of us that always is looking to get. And I think who was it, Seth Godin, who someone said that, sorry to tell you, but everybody is a salesperson now because of media and what you have to do. And what does a salesperson do is trying to get something, right? And that's very, very apparent. And so we really honored to this day you know we just go fall over backwards people like brian stevenson and others who do the opposite frankly and live on behalf to give others for others whether it's people whether it's places and again i just feel like too formulaic extractive versus regenerative it's actually regeneration to me is about coming home and every cell is regenerating right now every living being and that's what cells do. They're constantly regenerating. Every man a second, they don't stop. They don't go to sleep. And but at the same time, if we look at who we are, you know, to me, regeneration is about coming home. It's not a concept. It's about who we are. It's a default mode of life. It's a default mode. And there's two examples I want to share. One is just the fact that when we care, what does that mean? And the thing is that human beings universally care. I don't, doesn't matter what they are, what they do, and how they may not seem so, but they care. They care about their children, their family, their friends. They care about where they live. They care about their church or synagogue or temple or, you know, they care about their pets. They care about, they care. We care any time we care, 
what do we, what does care mean? It means about we care about the life of something. We, we want it to have life, to give it more life, to endure, ensure as a life. And um, so that's one thing. But there's also a beautiful example, a way in, a, in another modality, which is Isabella Tree and Charlie Burrell in the UK, who inherited a 3,500-acre farm in Sussex and a castle with it. They were, he was a baronet. And they inherited it uh, surprisingly. I guess skipped a generation or something, and all of a sudden they found themselves with a farm that was losing money. And they tried to improve the agricultural systems and spend money and this and that, and it lost more and more money. And so they met an ecologist from Holland, from the Netherlands, uh, who was rewilding, that is just turning land back into wilding. And, and, but his technique was so interesting. And so the technique that they used on the, the NEP estate, which is what it's called, uh, and she's written a beautiful book called Wilding, Isabella Tree, I highly recommend. But what they did is they took out all the fences in, inside and they, they got rid of the, all the equipment. They ring-fenced it and they brought in three animals, you know, the Tamworth uh, pigs, Exmoor ponies, and Longhorn cattle. And these three animals were the animals that basically were the closest relatives to the animals that roamed Europe and the UK, you know, thousands of years ago, the auroch and, and the longhorn cattle today. And they just and did nothing. They just let them go. And this is 20 years later. Three years ago, the first nesting stork occurred on their property since 1414. A white stork with a nest, you know, which is in fairy tales and the stork bringing the baby. We have it in our, as a creature that, you know, definitely is in our stories and tales and so on. Just that there was none there for 600 years. And this year, there's 20 nesting, 20 nests. Okay. They have more red listed species on their farm than all the UK conservation areas put together. More purple and butterfly and this and this and this and this. Where did these creatures come from? The pigs. This is a farm made huge, almost lakes, you know, ponds, big ponds. They made them so far. There's mussels at the bottom of these ponds. Where did the mussels come from? They're inland. They now die for the mussels. They feed themselves. I mean, it's just ordinary. What has happened at the Nepa State? People come from all over the world now to go look at it, see it. It just proves that regeneration is the default mode you get the way in this case, right? And we have to get out of our own way. And so, you know, our beliefs, what we've been told, what we've been taught, what we think is true and not true, and so forth. Regeneration is innate to us, too. Amazing. It reminds me of one of your quotes. You say, look, the earth will come back to life no matter what. Nations, peoples, and cultures may not. And that's such a powerful example of that. Wow. Thank you for sharing. As we come to a uh, reluctant closure, because we, I, I could just go on infinitely. Uh, this is so beautiful. And I'm feeling very regenerated <laughs> right here in this moment. Um, but as we as we come to a closure, I, I wanted to you know share my deep appreciation for how the approach that you're taking is one which is not as you know prescriptive on any you know single set of ideas, but really more a framework to invite people to 
do their own introspection and to come up with their own choices. I don't see you, you know, evangelizing, for example, a particular way of life and a particular, except just this notion of like, let's help you understand who you truly are and what your true potentialities are and what life is about and what your connection with the universe. And beyond that, I've come up with my checklist, like these questions we read that you came up in 15 minutes, you come up with yours. You know, and perhaps you might find mine valuable. So that is like, uh, you know, there's a sense of surrender in that, a sense of almost like faith in the ultimate purity of human nature and, and a sense of almost respect that uh, I shouldn't be putting out there a singular kind of path where maybe many different paths are ultimately going to converge to, you know, where we need to head as long as you're staying in tune. I think I'm hearing a little bit of that from you. Absolutely. I mean, I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. So I'm much less beyond that. I think I explained, I write to learn. And so for me, I'm just as much a part of the learning process as is everybody else. You know, there's no difference at all. And I do love to share, you know, what I'm learning as I go. And many people seemingly enjoy it too. But so... If that is a way that I can express my agency, that is by how I can connect, then that's that I feel so grateful. I mean, how lucky am I? You know, how fortunate am I? But it really boils down, or in, in its simplicity, to just I mean, like I was an altar boy in church, you know, and in Catholic church, you know, and I held out the wafers in this little tray <laughs> for the priest to put into people's mouths, you know, sacrament is a sacrament in the Catholic Church, you know. But so for me that gesture which I was taught, of course, you know, as a young boy, you know, it's the same gesture. I think all of us really feel comfortable with, you know, can I be helpful? That's when we feel our I think our truest self, you know, in that sense. Many people do not have that opportunity. They're they need their help. And maybe there's not enough of us, you know, gear holding out our hands and offering. Uh, but each has to do it in his own way, or her own way, and in a way that makes sense. What I love seeing right now, by the way, in the world is the objects of and the victim of colonialism arising back up worldwide and reclaiming their culture, reclaiming their voice, and speaking truth to power about what has happened and what is happening to see all these new voices that are actually express ancient understanding and wisdom and wisdom holders and traditions to me is just one of the joyous things that's happening right now. And that's what I mean about when the weather changes, when things get more, you know, incorrect and rocky and disruptive and, and distressing, you know, it actually brings something out into the world and it is happening. There's no question in my mind that it is. Robin Wall Kimmer uh, wrote a book called Sweet Grass. You know, she's a Native American and she tells a story of a, of a scientist, a botanist, you know, going into a tropical forest and hires a young lad who lives there. I think it's India, as a matter of fact, as, as I remember, but I could be incorrect. It doesn't matter. It's a tropical forest. And so the young lad basically just points to everything and identifies it, the name, you know, what it does, why the usefulness of it in terms of people, medicine, it can be food, it can be fiber, it could be this, it could be that. You know, the botanist at one point just says, this is a 
incredible how much you know. You know the name of every plant and what it does. And, and the young lad in the Robert Wall Kimber story acknowledges the compliment but looks a little sad. And he says, yeah, I do know the names, he said, but I haven't yet learned the song. Such a beautiful story. And every, every culture and tribe, they sang to the living world, you know, and song. There is a tribe in Nova Scotia culture in, in Micmac. They, October, the full moon, they would listen to a mother tree, you know, big tree, and they'd listen to the wind softening through pines and firs, and it would make a certain sound. They would name the tree for that sound. That sound was particular to that tree, and then they named it. They didn't write it down. They just remembered the name. And we don't have a capacity in the English language to do so with our three million words. We cannot name a sound. We can describe a sound, yes, but we can't name it in a particular way, you know, like you have a particular name. And they could come back five, ten years later, and they remember the name of the tree in October, in the full moon, and they'd listen to the wind softening through the tree, and they could detect whether the sound, the name of the tree and the sound they were hearing were the same or different. If it's different, it means something had happened to the tree and it was suffering. That intimacy and the, the capacity of imagining the words for a sound and remembering it and just say, that's the tree's name, you know? There's so much out there that's just begging people to enter it, you know, enter into this world, you know, that is so different than, you know, Disney. Thank you so much for bringing this out for us. Um, and Paul, I mean, like, we didn't dive a whole lot into your personal journey, but that was also so powerful and profound when you talked about how there was strong discomfort and unrest you had within your home as a child, but then that propelled you to go outside and that's where you found so much, you know, growth for yourself, or that itself could be a story we would unpack perhaps in another podcast, you know, I'd certainly love to have you back, certainly love to have you back. Thank you so much for, yeah, giving so generously, you know, of your wisdom, your time, your spirit. Uh, this has been tremendously uplifting. Yeah, it's a joy to be with you. If you send me your address, I'll send you the latest book when it's finished. Yes, yes, we would love to. And in fact, when it is released, I'd, I'd love to take a, you know, a rain check with you to invite you back here, you know, to talk about that as well. Well, yeah, I'd love to talk about it when it comes out. It's in 24, so it's, you know, it won't be right away. But I'd love to come back and talk to you about it after, you, after you've read it. We can have a good time with that one. It's, it's called The Book of Carbon, A Love Story. So it's really, it's about falling in love. Yeah, but you think of love in such a more expansive way. It reminds me of Rumi, you know, Rumi said once, love is the bridge between you and everything, everything. And that's what you represent. You know, you're not here just to have us think about humanity. You know, you, you, you take us much beyond humanity into all, all of life. I think as Heraclitus said, love is knowledge. Know me. You can't avoid but love, I guess, when you, when you truly know, I guess. Is that what I understand from that? It, it redefines knowing and love both. Yeah. I mean, say love is knowledge. You're waiting at knowledge is from, you know, books and teaching. No, knowledge yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How beautiful, how beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Paul. Um, really, really grateful. Lovely, lovely to meet you, Andrew. Thank you so much.